The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. So let's start the way we always start. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to Matthew chapter 17? I'm waiting for the day when everybody says it with me, but that's okay. Someday maybe. Someday maybe it'll happen. Matthew 17 is where we're going to be. The gospel of Matthew. Yeah, I know we had Mark read over us uh, and we will get there, but Matthew 17 is where we're going to spend time. Use a phone or a tablet. Use those hardback black Bibles under every chair. Uh, That's on page 822. Hey to our online people. Uh, If you're out of the state right now, it is raining here like it was, uh, like we live in Seattle or something like that. Uh, And so you'll hear the drips. Welcome to our, our building with ceilings that drip. Uh, so everything is dripping today. Oh, there's a trash can in the back. That is not for trash. That's for water. All right. So uh, I would advise against drinking that. Um, Matthew chapter 17. As you're getting to Matthew 17, uh, last week I preached a sermon called The God of the Mountain. That's what I uh, titled our sermon last week because last week we started chapter 17 by looking at the incredible of a, uh, event called the transfiguration. Jesus' transfiguration. Uh, the story goes, Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John, his three favorite disciples up on a mountain. Three favorites, right? Remember they're his favorites or they're the three that you couldn't trust, right? The three that might get kicked out of a Chili's on a Tuesday night. That's the three that he brings up with him on the mountain. And he is metamorpho, is the Greek word. He is transfigured on the top of the mountain. And so essentially, Jesus Christ... The son of the living God, that's what Peter called him, the Christ, the son of the living God, presses pause on the miracle of his incarnation, of God taking on flesh. That miracle, he pressed pause last week to show off who he really is. And he is the one of whom all the fullness of God dwelt therein. And so he presses pause and kind of shows that off for a moment. And in that moment, a cloud representing the glory of God descends on the mountain. The audible voice of God speaks. uh, and, And then remember those three disciples who are up there, their minds are blown by this. They freak out. Peter opens his mouth, starts talking, and he says, Jesus, it's good that we're here. It's good that we are here. Can't we just stay? Can't we just stay up here? I'll build some tents. Let's just stay put. It's literally the idea where we, it's the story we get the idea of a mountaintop experience. That's what happened last Sunday. And and, and listen, I just wanted to let you know, I am an expert in these types of things. Mountaintop experiences. This is why I'm a pastor. I'm good at these kinds of things. I have a PhD in this stuff and and it's all rooted all the way back to a thing called youth camp. Youth camp, okay? Uh, Anybody ever go to church camp? or Young Life Camp, or something like that. You've been to a youth camp, okay? Uh, For me, I got saved in high school. I started going to these youth camps, and the same thing would happen every single year. The same thing would happen every year, Thursday night. Thursday night at youth camp. The leaders called it cry night, and I didn't understand what that meant until I was there, but the band would play the best kind of emotive worship set that they could come up with, 
in the 1900s, okay? So it was like shout to the Lord, all right? But it was still, it was still something, all right? Um, uh, they, and so the band would play and then the preacher would come out and like give a killer gospel message asking students to receive Christ. And at that point, by that point in the week, we'd literally only had like three hours of sleep right? They'd hopped us up on so much like so many Skittles and Pixie Sticks and Mountain Dew that we were ready to literally give our lives to a Christmas tree. We would have dedicated our life to anything at that point. But, but in the midst, every single year, in the midst of tears and hugs and promises, I would say these words, God, I'm never going to be the same again. I'm never going to do those things again. And they would always instruct you to like write your sins down on a piece of paper and then do something with that, right? So I like, I nailed them to a cross and I once burned them in a can and I threw them in a lake and I baked it in a cake. Like I've done all those things. I've done with all of my sins. I, I did whatever it would take to say, God, when I get home, I'm gonna be different. When I get home, things are gonna be different. I'm gonna break up with her. I'm gonna respect them. I'm going to stop doing, well, pretty much everything I did leading up to youth camp. I'm going to be different. And I'm telling you, man, I would come home from youth camp down from the mountain and, and I would have several successful weeks, several successful weeks. But it was just a matter of time before that mountaintop would wear off. It, it would and the things that I'd promised to stop doing would start to creep back into my life. And after, by a month or two, I was almost always fully back into my previous lifestyle. It's like I couldn't get camp to stick. I couldn't get it to stick. And I would find myself going like, again? Like I'm here again? Dang it, I need camp. I need to get back to camp. When is that? Like 10 months? I need camp right now. I need to get back on the mountaintop right now. And I didn't know how to. I didn't know how. And I told you last week as we finished the transfiguration up that the problem with the top of the mountain, with the God of the mountain, is that life with Christ most often is not lived on the mountain. Most often life with Christ is not lived on the mountain. And so today's sermon is like part two of last week's sermon. And it's called the God of the valley. The God of the valley. So this is going to be fun. Here we go. Matthew chapter 17. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Follow along with me here. And when they came to the crowd, this is them, the three and Jesus coming down from the mountain. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, to Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. All right. This is the first event after the transfiguration event. It is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three synoptic gospels record this event right after the transfiguration. And we are first introduced to a father, the father whose son is suffering. This father is unnamed. 
That's an important note because the gospel writers will often use this as a method to introduce a character who only appears once and yet shows what true discipleship looks like. Think of the the woman caught in adultery. Think of the woman uh, subject to bleeding. Think of the father of the son who is an epileptic. These unnamed characters who show what true discipleship is. And this father is actually going to be a stark contrast to Jesus' disciples. So keep that in mind. We'll see that as we proceed. But the child's plight is terrible. It's horrible. This poor child is having seizures and is in constant danger of death. Constant danger of dying. In Mark's account, we actually are told that it's a demon that's causing these seizures who throws this boy into fire and water. But Matthew stresses specifically the epileptic nature of these seizures used by a demon. We'll see that later in the text. But these illnesses and demons, uh, the, the possession idea, were all connected in the ancient world. All of these were all connected together. And it's always at this point when we come across like demons or something, that I feel like I need to remind us that we are all products of the Enlightenment, And so it doesn't hit us quite the same way as it would have if you were a kind of pre-modern reader, an ancient reader of these texts. As post-enlightenment people, we value reason and, 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 and rationality, like linear mathematical thought. And and so one of the byproducts is that most enlightened people don't feel real comfortable talking about supernatural things. We just don't, although that is not actually the case with emerging generations. Just so you know, like emerging generations are far more comfortable with the idea of like angels and demons and cosmic spiritual warfare and like a more, like a more enchanted world, a more mysterious world than older generations may be comfortable with. So this is a change culturally that's happening. But I always like to quote C.S. Lewis uh, from his masterpiece, The Screwtape Letters, uh, one of the greatest thinkers of the last century. This is the quote. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. That's what he means, the demons, angels, the demonic, the supernatural. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So one error with the demonic is is to think that everything is the devil, to attribute every bad thing that might happen to the devil. So you get a flat tire on your way to work and you're like, it's because the devil put that nail in front of my tire. Not because you drove through a construction site and there just happened to be a, a nail there, right? Right? So, or, or some people think, oh, my hair, I just, my hair's not working for me today. There's a, there's a devil behind that. There's a demon behind that. And it's like, no, you just have bad hair. De- devil don't need to work on that. Okay, that was just gifts of, of your birth. Okay, it's just bad hair. So, so the other error, though, is not to just attribute everything to the devil. That's probably not too many of our predispositions. The other error is to pretend that he doesn't exist. This is where I think most of us live. The other error is to ignore the supernatural altogether and to conclude if there's any issue at all, it's chemical, it's medical, it's emotional, or it's mental. And all of those things, hear me, yeah. Yes and amen to all of those things. They are contributing factors 
but there's no consideration given at all to the demonic in our modern world. But I just want you to note that in this text, both Matthew and Mark point out that there is a demon and the demon is creating these physical manifestations of seizures, epileptic seizures. In fact, they look eerily similar to suicide attempts. Remember, we talked about suicide. The boy seizes up and is thrown into the fire, is thrown into the water to drown. So like, let's not ascribe everything to the demonic. Let's not move to that polar extreme. Like, let's not ascribe all mental health issues to the demonic, but let's not be naive to the fact that we do have an enemy. We have an enemy whose purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's prowling, hunting. So Matthew knows that there's a presence of a demon. We'll see that down in verse 18. I'm not just making that up from Mark, okay? We'll see this. But he is centering on not the aspects of the cosmic war. He's really centering on the discipleship aspects of this story. So we'll see this. Let's, let's keep reading. Look at verse 16. The man is still speaking. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, this is something of an indictment on the disciples at this moment. Because if you remember Matthew chapter 10, verse one, here's the text, I'll put it up. This is Jesus. And he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So hear me, the disciples had already been given authority over the demonic realm, over illness. And they have at this point in, in Matthew's gospel been involved in a number of unbelievable miracles, unbelievable things. But now they failed. The disciples in this instance have failed. For some reason, they could not heal this boy. For some reason, they could not exercise this demon, although they have been given the authority to do so and had done so. We're going to find out why they failed in just a moment. So look at verse 17. So Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So these are sharp words from Jesus at this moment. And the question is, who are they directed at? Who is the faithless and twisted generation? Well, there's a, there's a bit of debate on this in the commentaries, but I believe that Jesus is directing that critique towards his disciples. They're the closest, uh, I mean, legitimately, they're the closest people to, uh, to that phrase in the text. And so I think that actually makes sense. And I think it makes sense because the word translated faithless there, faithless, uh, is, is I think better translated unbelieving. Oh, unbelieving and twisted generation. I think Jesus is visibly frustrated here with his disciples' lack of belief. So I just want you to note, unbelief is the major theme of this story. 
faith. You can say faith or trust or belief. Those, those words are sometimes used synonymously in the Bible. But, but I think belief is the major theme of this text because Jesus shows up and he sees what's happening and he calls out the disciples for their lack of belief. And essentially it's just like, move. Bring the boy to me, just move. Verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon. So there it is. He knows it's a demon as well. And it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. So, so follow me here. Matthew also acknowledges at the root that this problem is demonic. And, and, and it feels in this moment, as I'm reading Matthew's gospel, all too easy to just cast some shade on, on, on the disciples. Like they should be able to do this. You've been given the authority to do this. Why aren't you doing this? And it feels easy for me to just start bashing on the disciples. So I just wanted to take a step back and say, anybody else around here cast out a demon recently? No? Okay, me neither. Just so you know, just me neither. Okay, once I sent, uh, when I was a youth pastor, once I sent a seventh grader home from youth camp, it's as close as I ever got, okay? <laughs> very close, okay, very similar. But, but listen, if, I just want to give them a little bit of grace. Like this isn't easy stuff. This isn't easy stuff, but hear me. Maybe if you're like me, you're thinking, hey, if the disciples can't even get this belief thing right, if the disciples can't even do this, what kind of hope do I ever have? Because I'm not really like them, or maybe I am a lot like them. Well, here's what I want to tell you that would, I think, encourage us and help us take heart. What's interesting in Matthew's account is that um, Matthew and Luke's account are significantly shorter than Mark's. Mark's account of this instance is the longest of the three gospels, which again is fascinating. It's strange because Mark tends to be the most abbreviated of all three synoptic gospel writers. So Mark writes almost another third of this story and Matthew and Luke do not. So in Mark chapter nine, we find something really interesting to contrast with the disciples' unbelief. So here's what I want you to do. I don't do this a whole lot. I want you to keep a finger in Matthew 17 and I want you to flip over to the right, Mark chapter nine. So we're not a big flip in your Bibles, church, but I'm gonna make you do this because Matthew, then Mark. Okay, you only have to turn to the right one book. So Mark chapter nine. Nine is where this story shows up in Mark's gospel. And, uh, and this, it's the same story, okay? It's the same story. Jesus comes down from the mountain with the big three uh, where they find the rest of the disciples arguing at this point with the scribes because they had tried to cast the demon out of this boy and it hadn't worked. That's the, the scene. Jesus comes down into the middle of what is really a chaotic moment and he asks what's happening and the father of the young demonized boy comes to Jesus and says, your disciples have been trying to cast this demon out of my son, okay? They can't seem to do it. Ever since th th this affliction has been happening, ever since he was a young boy, he's gritted his teeth, he's gone into convulsions. This demon has tried to kill him on multiple occasions by throwing him into fire, by drowning him in water and, and we've been able to see save him every single time, but I need your help. Can't you help me? Same story. Mark chapter nine, look at verse 20. And they brought Jesus, the boy, brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about 
foaming at the mouth. Now, pause right there. This one is for free. And it's probably for somebody in here. It's probably for somebody, somebody in here today. This one's free. Sometimes when you come to him, sometimes when you come to Jesus, it's gonna look like it's getting worse. It's gonna look like it's getting worse before it gets better. That's for somebody here this morning. I've experienced this. Like, man, when I first got saved, it threw me for a number of years because we all expect things to get better when we bring them to Jesus. That's our expectation. But in reality, things might get worse. In reality, it might get worse, sometimes much worse before it gets better. And for this father, it's gonna get better quickly, but for many of us, it's not. And so I just need you to know that the father brings his son to Jesus and the demon sees Jesus and he wreaks havoc on the boy. He wreaks havoc on him. Now, verse 21. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood. It often casts him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, I feel like if I were Jesus in this moment, I would say, if, if I can do anything, have you seen what I can do? Like, have you, what's, what's wrong with you? Of course, do you know who I am? Of course I can. This is a good reason why I'm not Jesus, okay? Uh, but like, if, if, you kind of expect almost Jesus to be frustrated like he was with the disciples, Oh, faithless and twisted father of this son, when are you going to start believing? That's not exactly what he says. Let's look at this. Verse 23. Jesus says to him, if, I, if you can. So he does, like he does need a little bit. If you can. If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And that word, unbelief, is the exact same word that's translated faithless in Matthew's translation. Oh, faithless and twisted generation is unbelief, unbelieving and twisted generation. The Greek word is pistuo. We've talked about this word before here at Fathom. Pistuo, uh, and, and that's translated belief or faith or have trust. Jesus' response is, I can heal your son if you believe. And then what, what does the father say? The father says, Jesus, I'm riddled with doubts. I'm 60-40 on this one. I, I, maybe 40, 60, if you can read my thoughts, all right? Okay. Jesus, I believe, but I'm also doubting. Help, help my unbelief. And what's Jesus' response? Does he quote scripture at the Father at this point, right? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Go memorize that. Come back when you've got more faith. Come back when you believe more. Come back when you're all in. Can you imagine? No, 
to the confession of this father that he doesn't believe Jesus heals his son. Now hear me, if, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us are there? How many of us are there and go, yeah, there's part of me that believes. I mean, really? Like I actually do. Like there's part of me that genuinely trusts, that genuinely believes, that genuinely has faith. There's parts of me that absolutely believe. But then there's this other part that's riddled with doubt where I just hold back and and, and go, yeah, can God really do this? Like, is God really good? Can God really accomplish these things that he says he can accomplish? And, And so in those moments, I think our prayer has to be the prayer of this father. I believe, help my unbelief. I think this is one you could get tattooed on your arm. It wouldn't be a waste. I believe, help my unbelief. Like your pastor says, you can get that tattooed on you, okay? You shouldn't get tattoos, but, uh, but you, you could get that tattooed on you. Don't read Leviticus today, okay? I believe, help my unbelief. What a prayer. What an honest prayer. But if your mind works like my mind, my mind then begins to say, well, how much belief then do I need? Like how much? for the mercy of grace of mercy and grace of God to work on my behalf because because hear me the disciples were just criticized for their unbelief the disciples had unbelief same word and they're criticized for it this father admits he has unbelief and he gets a healing so how much do you need to activate Jesus on this one that's what i want to know what's the metric for belief flip back to matthew Flip back to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, look at verse 19. This is right after the boy was healed instantly. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately because they're embarrassed. They come to him privately and they say, why could we not cast it out? Because he said to them, because of your little faith. Now that, hear me, that word faith is the same word. The same word translated trust, faith, believe. That's the same Greek root word. Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith, same word, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus uses an illustration here, the mustard seed. We love the mustard seed. We've already talked about the mustard seed in Matthew. Jesus loves talking about the mustard seed in this gospel. And so what Jesus just said is, hey, if you guys had pistuo, if you had belief, if you had trust, if you had faith, the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. 
You could move mountains. Now hear me, the idea of moving a mountain is a frequent proverb in the ancient world. He's not saying you can literally tell, you know, Mount Evans to move. Is it still Mount Evans? Have they renamed it yet? Okay, good. I don't know what it's called. Uh, I'm, I'm offensive to somebody in this way. But like here, the idea of moving mountains, it's not, he's not talking literal mountains. What he's saying in a proverb is that you are overcoming obstacles or doing impossible things and all you need is a mustard seed of faith. You know how big a mustard seed is? Way smaller than that. Check this out. You see that? No, because it's not there, okay? (laughs) But if I had had a real mustard seed, you still couldn't see it. The point is made, okay? The point is made. This is rabbinic hyperbole. Rabbinic hyperbole, gross exaggeration for the purpose of teaching. It was a very small seed. Jesus actually in another place calls it the smallest of all seeds. It's not the smallest of all seeds. Was Jesus dumb? Was Jesus lying? No, it's just an illustration, everyone, okay? It might've been the smallest seed known to these disciples, but Jesus' effort is to stress the difference. His effort is to stretch, stress the difference between the size of the belief needed and the effect of that belief. That's what he's illustrating. See, don't you realize it's not the amount of faith that you have? Sometimes, listen, sometimes we think that Christianity is about having enough faith. It's about having a, a, an amount, a quota, enough of this stuff. Like, like some have enough, some don't. Some don't have quite as much, don't have enough. But hear me, it's not a metric of how much faith you have. Rather, what matters is what you put your little faith in. It's not about how much, it's, it's what the object of your faith is. What, what, why it's, it, here's, here's why it's solid. It's, it's not that our belief is solid. Our faith may not be solid so much as the, the one who we put our faith in is solid. It's not the, the faith that saves you. It's the object of the faith that saves you. Otherwise, that faith would be a work. And it's not by works that we are saved. It's by faith. Here's the illustration, okay? Uh, I I heard the late Tim Keller use this illustration. Hear me, I love Tim Keller. I've quoted Tim Keller for years. I'll continue to quote Tim Keller, even though he has passed away. Not many pastors have had as big an impact on my life as Keller. I get emotional thinking about him. So that's weird, right? Because I never met him. But but just so you know, this is his illustration. Uh, If I walk out on five inches of ice, walk out onto a lake, five inches of ice thick, trusting myself to that ice. And I walk out there with terrible doubt, terrible unbelief, trepidation, walking out there, skidding out. Oh, I'm not sure. Like, just, I don't know. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure I might fall through this ice. Listen, if it's five inches thick, I'll be fine. I will be fine. I trust myself to that ice. I get out on that ice. And even if I have a weak faith, a minuscule amount of belief that that ice will hold me, it has nothing to do with it. My faith has nothing to do with it. The ice is five inches thick. It's objectively going to hold my body up. The ice will save me. On the other hand, 
if I walk out onto a slab of ice that's only a half of an inch thick, a half of an inch, and I walk out there with gusto, with confidence, and I step on that ice and I say, I have faith that this ice will hold me up. That's foolish. Doesn't matter how much gusto, it doesn't matter how much robust belief I am filled with, that object cannot hold me up. See, the illustration is, it's not how much faith you have. It's the object of your faith. Do you have faith in the right object? Even if it's just... Even weak belief, mustard seed belief in the right object, hear me, will save you. Now look again at verse 20, the end of verse 20. And then what's at the very end of verse 20? It's a little number, huh? And it's not 21, it's one. And you look down at one and it says some manuscripts insert verse 21. So verse 21 is actually a footnote in your ESV in Matthew's gospel. So verse 21 is not officially in your text. That little footnote explains that it was there at one point, verse 21, like when they numbered this thing, they had verse 21 in the text, but more recently they taken verse 21 out of the text because the oldest manuscripts that we have for Matthew based on archeological research and, and lingu linguistic research do not have verse 21 in them. So verse 21 is historically been there, but it's actually not original probably to the oldest manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. But now hear me, verse 21 of Matthew is almost identical to verse 29 of Mark chapter nine. And that is in our oldest manuscripts of Mark's gospel. So most scholars think that verse 21 is actually legit content from Jesus, just edited later into Matthew's gospel from the readers of Mark's gospel. So I think it's valid, but just because we're Bible people, I'm going to put Mark's version up on the screen. This is Mark chapter nine, verse 28 and 29. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Okay. Same, same thing. Verse 29. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's what Matthew's verse 21 says. First of all, there are kinds. Like that'll mess your mind up. There are different kinds of demons. Like I need a, a lexicon about that, Jesus. I need to know what kinds I'm dealing with. I thought it was just like one demon for all, but it's many different kinds. But I do think this is a really helpful verse. It really is a helpful verse because what this verse shows is that the disciples were trying to exercise this demon without prayer. They're trying to exercise a demon without prayer. How arrogant. How clueless. How overconfident do you have to be to think that you can exercise a demon without praying? You see, likely, while these three dudes were up on the mountain with Jesus, 
And the other disciples are hanging out down in the valley. I'm, I'm guessing they're strutting around. We're, we're disciples. Jesus isn't around like, it's like home alone. It's like risky business. It's like, let's go. We're the nine. Yeah, we didn't get called up to the mountain, but we'll show them who is faithful. We'll show them who his favorites ought to be. And they had been given authority to cast out demons. They had been given authority to heal illnesses. They had been given those authorities. They had seen them work. And so now I think they're on the valley floor trying to do this. And the text just told us they're trying to do it without prayer. They're trying to do it, listen, on their own. So my guess is they've got a bit of a swagger. And this, I think, is the key difference as to why Jesus responds differently to the unbelief of his disciples as opposed to the unbelief of this father. It's unbelief, the same word. They both have unbelief. But his disciples thought, hey, we've been faithful. We're his disciples. We've got this. We've got this. We have been, like, we believe in him. We believe, so we should be blessed, but they don't pray. So what that tells me is that their belief, their faith is not in God. In this moment, their faith isn't in God. Their faith is in themselves. Their belief, their trust, their faith is not in Jesus. Their faith is in half an inch, half an inch thick ice themselves. And they're strutting out there with gusto and that is going to crack. But the father in this story runs to Jesus, says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts. Help me. Help me. His faith is not in himself. His faith is in Christ alone. And listen, that's saving faith. That's faith in Jesus instead of you. That's five inches, 10 inches, 20 inches of ice. You can jump on that. You drive a truck on that. It ain't going through. So what do we make of this passage, okay? Like, what do we do with all of this? Well, sometimes, very often, in fact, this has been my experience. Maybe it's been yours as well but sometimes we come down from our mountaintops to our greatest failures. Sometimes we come down from the transfiguration mountain to failure. And I think that's because success can be more dangerous in life than failure. Success can actually be more dangerous to the believer than failure can be. See, success can blind you. It can blind us to the desperate dependence that we must have on our Savior. And this is where I think the disciples failed. Their success caused them some pride, which led to unbelief, and it's their failure. See, more often than not, Christians will pass the, the test of adversity. But... but very often will fail the test of prosperity. See, when you get strong, when you begin to think you have all that you need, that's when things can begin to fall apart. 
But hear me, the good news of the gospel is that there's five inches of ice available to us. There's five inch thick ice that you can stand on. And so when we're in the place where we're fighting doubt, when, when we're in that spot where we're like, I believe, like I, I genuinely believe, but I have, I have doubts. When we're in that spot where we say, I believe, but I'm struggling right now because of my circumstances to hang on to that belief, God steps graciously into that space. And our faith, even if it's just a little fleck of faith, if that faith is put into Christ, then he works in our lives. Church, listen, listen. Helplessness, not holiness, is how we access God. Now, holiness is important, but helplessness, not holiness, is how we access him. And listen, listen, that's great news. That is great news. The disciples thought, we've got this. We've been set apart. We are the holy ones. We've got this, and they failed. The father knew, I don't got this. Help me, Jesus. And Jesus heals his son. This isn't just right here. Okay, Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisee and a tax collector, they both go up to the temple to pray. And here are their prayers. Luke 18, I'll put this up here. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You see the Pharisee's prayer is about his holiness. Listen, all of those things you should do. You shouldn't be an adulterer. Okay, that's like big 10, right? That's like Easy. I mean, that's like an easy bar. Like, just don't sleep with people that aren't your spouse, okay? But, but like, these are things that you should, you should fast. You should give. You shouldn't extort. You shouldn't be unjust. Like, he's saying, God, I'm doing the things. I'm doing all the things, all the Christian things. I've got this stuff. I'm doing this stuff. I'm not like that tax collector. I'm not like that miserable guy. I'm a Pharisee. I've given my life to you. I'm doing all the stuff. Look at the tax collector's prayer, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, y'all, I don't know what version of Christianity you've bought into. I don't know what version of this you've bought into but it's not because of your holiness that you get God's help. It's because you turn to him in your helplessness. It's not the amount of belief that you have. It's where you run with your unbelief that matters. There is not coming a day where you're not gonna have to wrestle with this. There's not coming a day where trials will not wear you down to the point where you wrestle with doubt, at least at this level. Okay, life has a way of pounding you in a fallen world. 
It has a way of beating you up and you shouldn't feel shame when that brings seeds of doubt in your heart. Bring it to him. Bring it to Jesus. Bring him your helplessness. The father's like, I don't know if you can. Jesus is like, I, if I can, you just got to believe. I can do anything for someone who believes. He's like, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't. Help. And boom. Instantaneously, he heals his son. That's the prayer, I think. Remember that line, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer? I think that's the prayer. The prayer that drives out demons is asking Jesus for help. Not instantaneously. Remember, you come to him, it might get worse. But this kind can't be driven out by anything but the prayer of helplessness. It's the honest prayer. It's not the swagger of the disciples. It's the surrender of the Father. That's, that's it right there. And gosh, hear me. I, I love you. If you're always just kind of moping around, oh, I'm struggling. Oh, my, my life is so hard. Oh, I have doubts. If you're always just kind of there, yeah. Like here's my response. Yeah, you do. Who told you you weren't going to? Who told you that lie? Where did you get that belief? Of course you do. Of course you struggle. Of course this is hard. You're in the valley. But God honors your fight. Run to him. I believe. Run to him. And I don't believe. Run to him. I believe. Help my unbelief. He is the God of the mountain and the God of the valley. And the fight is to believe him in both places. Fight to believe him in the pain, the same way you believed in the comfort. Fight to believe in the darkness, the things you knew true to be in the light. Fight to believe in the valley, what you knew to be true on the mountain. You have to fight. So just what do you, what do you need to bring? What do you need to bring, even with a mustard seed, and s step out on that five-inch thick ice? Let's pray today. Father, we bless you. You are the God of the mountain. We never want to stop standing in awe of who you are. Jesus the Son, the Christ, the Son of the living God, all that glory wrapped up in this human shell. But God, most of our lives aren't lived there. And I can think of men and women, families in this room right this minute who, who aren't on the mountain right now. Maybe they're at the very bottom of the valley. Listen, maybe they're just on their way up or on their way down and it just feels kind of like mundane. And yet the call is, Father, to believe and bring our unbelief. 
The call isn't to perfect belief. The call is to honest helplessness with you. And so for my friends here, I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, draw them to you and help them to bring that helplessness to you. Gosh, it might get worse. The promise isn't that it will immediately get better. It might get worse. And yet that faith leads to God's action, that leads to Christ's healing, that leads to true belief. And so Lord, we want your response to us to be like this this father. We want you to heal, we want you to move. We wanna bring our measly mustard seed of of trust to you and, and see what you'll do. We don't want to feel that chastisement that you give to the disciples, a faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? So God, give us that faith. Give us that belief. Help us to run to you today. We love you, Father. Thank you for this passage. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.